God is good. Amen? And all the time. God is good. Uh, my name's Andy Rogers, if you haven't met me. That's for those of you who have been ribbing me because I haven't been here the last couple of weeks. So I have missed y'all. I have missed worshiping here. And as Maxine prayed and, and, and affirmed, the presence of the Spirit is at work here. Amen? Amen. Amen. I have missed y'all these last two weeks, but we have been celebrating with my daughter graduating. We, two Sundays ago, we happened to be back at the church where my wife and I met in youth group. It's where I gave my life to Christ. It's where I surrendered to the call. And the reason that I stand here alongside you here as pastor is because of what God was doing in my life through that community at that time. And so I give praise to God for that faith community and, and the fact that my daughter also gave her life to Christ in that church and so we celebrated that two weeks ago, and God is at work here too. And so last week, we ended up in the mountains. And for the first time in several years, we didn't end up back here. And I know there was ice cream on the green. How cool was that? Well, I ended up worshiping in a funeral home. That's a little different, isn't it? You heard me right. We joined with a church plant that had outgrown two prior spaces, and a funeral home was made available to them. And you might think, well, that's kind of down, that's kind of interesting. But you know what? What better place than to declare the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What better place to declare the defeat of sin and death that Jesus brings and offers to each and every one of us? And so what a neat experience it was, but I missed you. And I was reminding these last couple of weeks of how interesting or how challenging it can be, and maybe a better way of putting it, of walking into some place you haven't been in a long time or somewhere you've never been to worship. We have some first-time guests here today. I imagine you kind of feel like, oh, how's this work and all that kind of thing. And I say, I was reminded of what it was like these last couple of weeks. So I say to you, I pray that you have already begun to feel welcome here. And I want you to know that you're always welcome to be a part of this community called the Way Woodstock, where we are committed to glorifying God making disciples of Jesus Christ, how? By sharing in hope, living with purpose for the sake of others. That is who we are. Amen, church? Amen. Well, you may have noticed that Anne is not here today. It's because we swapped roles, if you will. She is actually preaching at another church plant today, praise be to God, and helping another church get started. And it's really neat to see, talking about sharing in hope, we're committed to that, and not just here, but everywhere. And uh, so we miss her today. But uh, as you saw on the video, we're starting a new series for the summer. And, and that series is, did, really, did Jesus really say that? Uh, if you've read through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you may notice there's some things, oftentimes in the newer translations, they actually put his words in red, right? The red letters, if you will. And, and if you read through the gospels, what you find is that Jesus will comfort you in one moment challenge and confront you in another and maybe even confound you in yet another where you say like did Jesus really say that well that's where we begin this series today is one of those passages and so I invite you to join with me to John's gospel chapter 7 the very end of chapter 7 verse 53 and read through verse 8 11 and if you've got a bible I encourage you to read along but listen into God's word for us this morning Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in an act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? 
They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you that your spirit is already alive and at work in our time and our gathering and worship today. And Lord, I thank you. I'm overjoyed by being able to be in this body of faith. God, I pray that your spirit would work in us and open us up to a deeper hearing of your word today. So God, may the meditations of our minds and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. I ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The church said, Amen. 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 Now, I know some of y'all are probably like this. Have you ever felt like you've drawn the short straw when it comes to a challenging task that has to be done? Any of y'all drawn the short straw? Well, I have to tell you that when Ann and I were looking at this series and looking at the the red letters and the ones that we might bring forward to, to study this summer, I indeed felt like I drew the short straw when it came to this first text Uh, Because it is challenging twofold. First, the message itself is a very challenging message, but also accompanying that is the origin of this text. In fact, look with your Bible. If you have a Bible, if you have a Bible app handy, look at this. There's a disclaimer that a lot of the more modern translations provide for us that says something along these lines. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 through 8. 11. Well, what do we do with that? What does that mean? Did Jesus really say that? There's a lot of questions that can come from that, right? So we have to take a look at this because what we find is that really what happens is the earliest manuscripts, the earliest copying of John's original gospel don't have this in it. But the scribes at a later date began to add this in and it was placed most frequently here. But we also can find it in several other places in the broader text of John chapter 7, which is a grouping of teachings in the temple. This is, fits in that context, and so we find it there. But it's also, we find it in Luke's gospel and some of the manuscripts that are copied over. But the, the truth of the matter is the scribes obviously had good reason to include it. And biblical scholars, most biblical scholars agree that this was added at a later time. In other words, this was not version 1, if you will, what John penned. It may be a later edition. So what do we do with that? Well, I think we do like we do with all Scripture. We begin to take a look at this Scripture in context of the broader context of Scripture. Because in many ways, that's how, when you think about how the Bible came to be, a collection of 66 books. Those of us as Christians and Protestant Christians have a a canon of Scripture, if you will. And and, and the early church went through and looked at what would be included and, and what would not necessarily be included. And what they looked at is how does what we are proposing to be added fit the, the, the consensus and the integrity of the whole of God's biblical narrative from the prophetic word in the Old Testament to the gospel in the New Testament. And so we should do the same when we look at this 
passage. And so let's look at the context. Let's look at the, 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 the plot here in this. What we find is that this is not an uncommon place for Jesus to find himself. He's often finding himself pitted between one person or another or being set up for a trap. Jesus is used to this, isn't he? And, and what we find here in this particular one is that the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are setting him up for a trap to see if he will be faithful to the Mosaic law that said if someone committed adultery, that, that the, 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 the justice for that is to put them to death. Or would he be loyal to Rome as an oppressive regime that said no more capital punishment by any occupied groups? We reserve that for ourselves. And so this is the trap that we find Jesus in in this particular situation. But that's not an uncommon place for Jesus. In fact, we find him being set up for traps in several places. Look at Mark 12 or Matthew 22. We find that there's another trap being set for him. You remember where he was being trapped? Well, should we pay taxes? I don't know about you, but I wish Jesus said, no, you don't have to pay taxes. Can I get an amen to that? But in that trap, he kind of flipped the tables back on him. And he said, you know, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. So we pay the Uncle Sam IRS, right? You know, and then there's another place where he's trapped, if you think about it. He was trapped about marriage. And you look at that and you find that also in Matthew's gospel. And again, it's this, it's this group of religious leaders trying to set Jesus up to take the bait. And so contextually, we find that this fits within the temple teachings in chapter 7 of John. Plot-wise, we find this consistent with what we see in several other occurrences where Jesus is being brought into an attention with a religious lead. He, he rubbed elbows with them, and, and um, no one should be surprised by that. So if the context fits, and if the, if, if the plot fits a pattern that we see Jesus in, then maybe we need to look at the words that he said. Are they consistent with what we see in the other red letters to see what he has to say here? And, and there's two words that I want us to focus in on, and if we're honest, they're two words that I think most of us would just assume skip over. There's that three-letter dirty word, sin, and then that word, condemnation. And I think the reason that we would just assume skip over those is because we both know what those are like, because we both experienced them. We know what it's like to be condemned, right? I think each of us have felt that at one point or another in our life. And we know what sin is, even if we don't explicitly call it that. We know what it is. We know the impact it has or in our life. And, and you know, we, we like to think of Jesus as preaching forgiveness and mercy, and he does that. So does he talk about sin? Does he talk about condemnation? Well, let's take a look at the other red letters. We see, beginning with sin, Jesus tells this woman's accusers, let the one without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Let's just shoot straight. Jesus doesn't shy away from addressing sin. There are dozens of passages that I could quote to you of where he's speaking to and addressing sin. And oftentimes we find him doing this with different groups of people. And if we fast forward just a little bit into John's gospel, John chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, you find these words. Jesus, again, is encountering the religious leaders. He says, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And I think all of us, whether we're willing to admit it or not, know that if we start sinning, we become in bondage to it. We, we become captive to it. It becomes oppressive in our life. And so Jesus is just calling it like it is. It's, it's the reality of, of, of the fallen world that we live in. And 
He goes on to write or goes on to say, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but the son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So does he speak about sin? Yes, but he speaks of it in a a freeing standpoint. But Jesus doesn't just speak to sin explicitly in, in all these verses that I could quote to you, but also implicitly. He speaks to sin. Think about the the greatest sermon ever preached. I know it wasn't mine. It was Jesus's Matthew chapter five, six and seven. The Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. We find him addressing sin in an implicit way. If you remember, he, he takes up the issue with murder and he says this. You have heard that it is said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Rut row. Y'all been angry with a brother or sister? I have. And then he goes on and he talks about sexual brokenness. He talks about adultery. He says, you've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Dare I say, I think our eyes are prone to wander and our thoughts can wander too. And sometimes we find ourselves thinking of or looking at people in an improper way. And so is the word sin written out in that sermon? No. But is it implicitly spoken of by Jesus? Absolutely yes. You see, sin is serious for Jesus. And knowing the destructive impact it has on one's life, we find Jesus' parting words to this woman It's been drugged before him, these words, go now and leave your life of sin. Now, he didn't say go and live a happy life, go do whatever makes you happy. He says, go and leave your life of sin. But did he really say that? Well, look back at chapter five. We find him having healed a crippled man. He'd been lame for 37 years. And if you find John five, verse 14, you find this. He he sought this man out after He's healed him and he returns and he finds him and he says this. He says, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. I mean, what's worse than being physically paralyzed? I think it's spiritually and emotionally broken and paralyzed in our relationships. That's what happens when sin creeps in and we allow sin to to have a place in our life. And Jesus knew this. And so he spoke to the man in chapter 5 in a similar way that we find him speaking to the woman in the passage we're reading today. Jesus is serious about sin. He's consistent about it throughout the words that we find him speaking. So what about condemnation? What about that word? You know, to condemn means to strongly disapprove of or to sentence. And clearly, that's what these women's, this woman's accusers want to do. They wanted Jesus to condemn her to death, yes? And, and Jesus, ironically, what they really wanted to do was trap him because they wanted to condemn him to death, right? But Jesus wouldn't have anything to do with this because you see him flipping the tables on him. He says, let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And as they walked away one by one, we find him looking at the woman. He stands back up and he asks her, has no one condemned you? And then these beautiful words of grace from Christ. Then neither do I condemn you. 
then neither do I condemn you. You see, I can't help but think that encounters like this is what inspired John earlier in his gospel as he opens up his gospel. Y'all know the most famous passage or verse out of John's gospel, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, that he sent his one and only son into the world, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. But you can't read that apart from verse 17. And listen to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Think about that. Let that sink in for a moment. So whether this was part of version one of John's gospel or version two or three, as the scribes added it in, it's clear from the plot and from the words of Christ, this is consistent with the red letters elsewhere. This is consistent with what we find Jesus coming to do. So it leads me to the second challenge of this passage, and that is the message itself, because it by itself can challenge us. And what we find is, I think in many ways, Jesus' words being an expression of John's opening salvo. I love the way he opens his gospel. In verse 14 of chapter 1, we find this. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus lived a life. He modeled a life of grace and truth, didn't he? And he spoke of grace and truth. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is one that doesn't condemn anyone, but neither does it condone any sin. Let me say that again. The good news of Jesus Christ is one that doesn't condemn anyone, but it doesn't condone any sin. The cross is proof of that, if you're asking me whether that's legit or not. The cross You see, Jesus was right in declaring that Jesus came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. And let me put it a little more succinctly, that he came really, I think, in many ways to save us from ourselves. Because I don't know about you, but we have a propensity, or at least I do, to elevate myself. To to make it about my agenda, make it about what I want. To to, to elevate the self. And dare I say, sometimes we, we do that to a point that we elevate ourselves to the place of God and we begin to judge other people. Anyone else guilty of that, or is it just me? Am I going to be left to hang here? All right, thank you. There's a few others willing to admit that. So journey with me back to the scene. We've got these religious leaders, and and, and they're they're back in the temple. This is a recurring theme. Go back and look at John chapter 7. You see this over and over again, this recurring theme of Jesus gathering. There's a group of people listening in to Jesus' teaching, and then the Pharisees come and interrupt the scene, and they're dragging this woman in there, supposedly caught in adultery. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I might be a little slow, but last time I remember, it takes two to tango. Am I right? How did they catch the woman and not the guy? I mean, and, and the Mosaic law said that you bring both the man and the woman before the community to address the brokenness. And somehow they only brought the woman before Jesus and they did it in a way that would cast light. They wanted to put all of a laser beam on her and her actions and put a beam on Jesus and say, okay, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And then Jesus, similar fashion to what he preached in the Gospel of Matthew, that sermon on the the mount, he started talking about that plank. Y'all remember when he said, 
Why do you worry about the speck when you have a plank in your own eye? And so Jesus gets real. He, he flips the tables here. Jesus is often flipping tables, isn't he? He flips the tables on the accusers and he puts the focus not on this woman, but on those that have drug her in. Talk about tables turned. Because you see, self-righteousness is a particularly dangerous sin. And he took the light off an individual to the self-righteousness of this group of people. Because self-righteousness is, and I dare say, a particularly dangerous sin. And the reason is, it's a sin that I think often we are not aware of in our own life. Let me give you an example. How many of y'all are on social media? Some of you are on, some of you are on, some of you see it. Maybe even the news might be the same way. Have you ever gone back to look at some of the posts you've made and realized that the heart in which you posted it or you echoed someone else's post was out of self-righteousness to show that, hey, I'm right and you're wrong? Even out of a, a, a cry for justice. How many of us stand up in, in, the, in the name of justice for an individual or a group of people that are marginalized or being condemned, but we do it with a condemning heart towards someone else or some other group? We get self-righteous and are condemning of someone else, and we bring them before Jesus, much like these Pharisees. Look at what they're doing, right? We do this often. You see, the, the point being is that we have all experienced condemnation. I think we all know what it's like to have someone judge us, yes? We all know what it's like to, to have someone look down on us, Yes? We all know what it's like to, to buy into the lie of what someone else has imposed on us. But if we're honest with ourselves, we also know what it's like to condemn others. To have a self-righteous heart toward someone else. And we do so and it blinds us to our own condemning heart. Our bent toward judging others. Christ spoke to this woman these words, neither do I condemn you. So I say to you today, those of you that have felt condemned or walked in here feeling like you were judged, may you hear the words of Christ. Say, neither do I condemn you. I love the way that Paul, after encountered Jesus, after Jesus had resurrected from the dead, Paul's trying to shut down the good news of Jesus and yet has that 180 turn in his life. That's what happens when we embrace Jesus, isn't it? And in that epic letter, the letter to the church in Rome, he writes this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is the good news. Jesus doesn't condemn you. He doesn't condemn me. He doesn't condemn that other person, whoever it might be in your minds. Rather, he came to save everyone who will repent and believe in him. Amen? So let me leave you with one other part of this is there's no condemnation. But there's also no condoning. You see, this is the grace and the truth. This is that tension between and in Christ. The truth being that the wages of sin is what? And we've lived that, y'all. If you've got an estranged relationship, if you've got a broken relationship, if you've got that tension between you and, and someone else, you know what it's like to know what it's like to lose someone without losing someone, yes? 
The wages of sin is death. It is not just physical, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's relational. We live that, we know that, but by the grace of God, through Christ Jesus, we see that he takes those sins upon who? Himself. He takes them to the cross, defeating death and sin for all of us. You see, not only does Jesus not condemn us, But he doesn't condone our sin either. The proof of that is the cross. I've said that before. I want to say it again. Just look to the cross. Why else would he come and be betrayed, beaten, lied about, and die on a cross if he didn't take sin seriously? If he didn't know how significant, how damaging it is to you and to me and to our relationships between one another. He takes this seriously. And so in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, he's speaking to a man. He says, stop it. Any of y'all ever said that to a kid or a dog? Stop it. He says, stop sinning. And to this woman, he says, hey, leave your life of sin. I'll show you how. I'll help you. That's what the Holy Spirit's available to each and every one of us, allows us, enables us to do. The Spirit of truth helps us walk in the truth. We can walk away from that life of sin and into the freedom that God has for us through Christ Jesus and what he did on the cross. This is the gospel. This is the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. And he's offering it to this woman in this passage. And he offers it to you and me today. Amen? You see, so often we mistake. Here's the challenge I find in this text is so often we make the mistake that Christ's non-condemning view means that Christ condones sinful choices. That's what culture would have you espouse. Is that because Christ doesn't condemn, then he must condone. That's not the farthest thing from the truth. You see, culture would have us relabel what is considered sin as acceptable and affirm it as desirable, but not Jesus. Let me say that again. Culture would have us relabel what is considered sin as acceptable and affirm as desirable, but not Jesus. Think about it. Why would Jesus not condone sin? Because he loves you. Because he loves me. Because he loves all of humanity. Because he knows how destructive sin is when it operates in our lives. He knows full well how it can isolate us, how it can separate us, and how it can destroy the very relationships we care the most about. That's why he doesn't condone it. But he atones for it. He goes to the cross for you And for me, revealing a love of God for us, a holy love, a love that loves you just the way you are. Hear me, church. Do you know that God loves you? Do you truly know that God loves you? Warts and all, he loves me. Thanks be to God. But he loves us too much to leave us as we are. That's the power of the cross. It's the power of the resurrection. We, as good Methodists, call that sanctifying grace. When we yield ourselves to walk in the newness of life with Christ, empowered by His Spirit, we can live a life free of sin. We can lead that life of sin that Jesus is speaking to in this passage. 
And so in closing, I just want to give you three questions to ponder, and these are personal. There's a corporate aspect to the gospel always, but today is a day I just want to, I want to ask you three questions, and that's this. First one's this. For what do you carry a sense of condemnation for in your life? Whether something you did or said or is being projected onto you, it doesn't matter. What is that? And would you take a moment and allow the words of Christ to be received afresh in you? I came not to condemn you, but to save you. Would you take those words to heart? I came not to condemn you, but to save you. Secondly, would you invite the Holy Spirit to prompt you as to whom you may be condemning, either outrightly or indirectly with your words, your actions, maybe even in your social media postings? Would you allow the Holy Spirit to to convict you of that and, and ask God to soften your heart towards those that you have a hardened heart toward? You've gotten a little crusty toward. You've got a little self-righteous toward. Do you allow him to move in your life today? And the third is this. Would you invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate in you what you keep doing and thinking God condones it? You know what that is. I know what that is because it's what gets between me and God. And it gets between me and others. It's that three-letter word. That's pretty weak, y'all. Sin. We don't like to talk about it. Christ defeated it. So would you allow Christ to reveal to you just how serious he takes your sin and how serious he takes mine? He took it enough to lay his life down for you. When people say God is love, they're absolutely right. What is it Jesus said? There's no greater love than for one who lays down their life for another. That's what Christ did for you. That's what Christ did for me. That's what Christ did for all of humanity and all who believe in him shall have everlasting life and can walk in the freedom of life with him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Merciful Father, I thank you for being in our presence today and our singing and our praying and now contemplating on your holy word, your Spirit-informed, Spirit-infilled word. God, it's a challenging text for us in many ways. But the good news of the gospel, Christ coming in truth and grace, is that there's no condemnation in you. So God, may we place our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, today anew. For those of us that walked in the door feeling condemned, may we know that Christ sees us. And he offers to take whatever it is that we carry to the cross. And he looks to us as he looked to the woman there and says, neither do I condemn you, but I forgive you. May we also be challenged by his word to, to live into a life that we walk away from our life of sin because that's what you came to do. It's hard, and we try it, and we do it in our own strength. I know I have, and it's, (laughs) we fall when we do that. It's only in your strength. It's only because of Christ, and it's only in leaning in on your spirit, God, that we can do that. So God, help us to walk in that newness of life that Christ called the man in chapter 5 and the woman in chapter 8 to. We need it to. We want it to. 
I ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Amen.